This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Hey everyone, welcome back to a new episode of the Gender Justice Brief. I'm your host, Erin Hart, Communications Director at Gender Justice, and I'm super excited to welcome Christy Hall, Senior Staff Attorney at Gender Justice, for her first podcast appearance. Hey, Christy. Hello, good to be here. We have been super focused on the legislative session that is thankfully winding down, but I've had on my list for many weeks, many moons to have you on the podcast. A few months ago, you celebrated your 10-year anniversary at Gender Justice. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. I've been here ever since, like pretty much ever since I graduated from law school. Awesome. In this episode, would love to cover your time at Gender Justice and the sort of the big cases that you've worked on, particularly when it comes to transgender rights, and basically just celebrate your awesomeness. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty great. Why don't we start back with what brought you to gender justice? When did you first encounter our nonprofit? Yeah, so I was in law school. I'm a second career attorney and did computer science before becoming an attorney. And when I was in law school in my second year, I did a clinic, which is a pretty common experience. It's basically like working in a law firm, but it's supervised by professors and staffed by students. And my professors were Lisa Stratton and Jill Galding. And the year after I was in the clinic, they left the clinic and founded Gender Justice. So they founded Gender Justice in 2010. That year, I was a third-year law student, and then I graduated at the end of that year. And one of the cases that we'd worked on at the clinic was a civil rights case. It was a sexual harassment lawsuit brought against a very large national cleaning company, and we represented an undocumented worker who was seriously sexually harassed at her workplace. And they took that case with them to gender justice that I had worked on at the clinic. And so when I graduated, I went to gender justice and kept working on that case. And that was the first really big case that gender justice had. And how, what was the trajectory of the case? Was this, I know that in some of, in a lot of our legal work, we have worked under the Minnesota Human Rights Act. Was that, that. Was that the case in this case? No pun intended. (laughs) So uh, similar, but uh, so Minnesota Human Rights Act is the state anti-discrimination law. It prohibits discrimination in a number of different areas, including employment, but also education, public accommodations, and several different areas. And the federal analog to that would be Title VII, which prohibits discrimination in employment. So we were in federal court on that case because we were bringing both federal claims and we were bringing state claims in that case. And yeah, we we were successful in resolving that case and getting a great result for our client. Okay, so that is the case that put gender justice on the map, yeah. so to speak. 
What what was our next big case for you in the early days? We, I mean, there are so many, like thinking back to all of the cases that we've done, but one of our early cases was that we got involved in a case involving three chauffeurs who were chauffeuring a Saudi prince at the Mayo Clinic and were fired expressly for being women. And our clients felt very strongly about that and then also felt very strongly about the rights of women in Saudi Arabia to be able to drive and got connected with some activists in Saudi Arabia around that case. It was a really interesting experience. Oh, wow. And do we also win that case? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. We win almost all. <laughs> almost we win all, all the cases. cases. Yes. <laughs> That's so interesting. I remember actually reading about that case in the newspaper back when that happened in, I don't know, 26, it was a while ago, but yeah. One of the first cases that I remember learning about with researching gender justice was our work in the Tovar case. And I think that was regarding the Affordable Care Act. Can you tell us a little bit about that case and why that was significant? Yeah, so we the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, went into effect in 2010, and one uh, there are obviously many huge parts to the Affordable Care Act, but one of the kind of maybe lesser known provisions of it is that it prohibits discrimination in healthcare. So just like Title VII prohibits discrimination in employment the Affordable Care Act, it's referred to as Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, um, that prohibits discrimination in health care. And it prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, race, age, disability, things of that nature. Yeah, I think we had a couple of, once that, that a statute came out as part of the Affordable Care Act, we were immediately interested in it because it was a brand new civil rights law. And that's rare. And it matters how the specifics of how a court interprets a brand new civil rights law. And one of the kind of areas of active litigation and other civil rights law at the time was when a statute prohibits sex discrimination, what does that mean? Um, Does it include sexual orientation? Does it include gender identity? And many federal courts in many of the other statutes, Title IX, Title VII, had been saying that, yeah, that's part of sex discrimination. We didn't have a Supreme Court decision like that at the time, um, but we well, here's a brand new civil rights law, and we'd better make sure that that also covers gender identity and sexual orientation when it's being interpreted by our courts. And there are a lot of, of course, really critical aspects to like not discriminating on the basis in particular of gender identity in healthcare. And at the time, we were well aware that in the state of Minnesota, most large employers who provided health insurance excluded gender affirming care from their health insurance plans. And that's discriminatory. So they explicitly excluded it? Yeah, they would typically have a provision in the insurance contract that said something like, 
regardless of whether, I mean, they didn't say this exactly, but regardless of whether this is considered medically necessary by your doctors, regardless of what, you know, criteria you might meet, just like, we are just not covering anything related to, and of course they would use definitions that we wouldn't use these days, but essentially gender affirming care. We're not covering that. End of story. Yeah. And we heard, so we had worked with some insurance companies. We also worked closely with Phil Duran, who is a local attorney here in the Twin Cities, who had done a lot of work on this issue under the Minnesota Human Rights Act with the University of Minnesota, for example. Um, We wrote an open letter to health partners, encouraging them to get rid of this exclusion in the plan that they offer to their own employees. And then what we heard from the client in this case, Brittany Tovar, and Brittany worked as a nurse for Essentia Healthcare, which is like a chain of clinics and healthcare providers and things like that across the state. And Brittany worked there as a nurse and had health insurance that covered herself and also her transgender son. And she found out when it came time to seek out puberty blockers for her son, she found out at that time that Essentia had a healthcare plan that contained one of these exclusions. And the healthcare plan was through health partners. Health insurance is really complicated. There are a lot of details about exactly how are you self-insured? Are, is this, how does that work? In this case, it was a self-insured plan that was offered by health partners to cover Essentia employees. And so we thought this is a good opportunity to show that the Affordable Care Act prohibits, it prohibits discrimination in healthcare That should include discrimination on the basis of gender identity and having an exclusion like this that expressly singles out a kind of care that only transgender people need, that is a form of discrimination. And so under that statute, then, these kinds of plans should be illegal. And so we helped her bring a lawsuit against both her employer, Essentia Health, and then the third-party administrator of the healthcare plan, and I was helpers. Okay, and that case, I'm going to just go ahead and assume that we won that case. Can I assume that? <laughs> we did win that case. We got we got a really good decision in that case that I think, I'm, and hopefully helped encourage many employers in the state who have those kinds of exclusions from getting rid of them. Yeah, and we also, we had brought a lawsuit a couple of years earlier about the Affordable Care Act that was one of the first cases in the country to bring a lawsuit in the affordable, based on the Affordable Care Act on behalf of a transgender patient who was abused by healthcare providers when he went into the emergency room. And our argument was that he was being discriminated against on the basis of his gender identity. And so that case, we already had that decision where the court said in that case that yeah, this statute does protect transgender people from discrimination. When it says sex discrimination, that includes gender identity. And so we had that kind of building block already. And then the Tovar case helped us build on that by saying, okay, 
that this statute prohibits discrimination in healthcare on the basis of sex, and that includes gender identity, what does that mean about these kinds of insurance plans that have these blanket exclusions? And so the Tovar case helped us establish that, yeah, that's also, that's a form of discrimination that's prohibited by the Affordable Care Act. And there's been, at the federal level, there have been a series of regulations about this statute, essentially saying, how does the Department of Health and Human Services interpret this statute? And regulations that have gone back and forth then under first the Obama administration and then the Trump administration and now the Biden administration about, does this include health insurance? Does it include, very importantly, does it include gender identity? And currently the regulations do say that you can't, according to the federal government, that you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity. And yeah, so... That's an important change in how the law has been interpreted that has helped people across the country be able to access health care that wouldn't have been covered by health insurance a decade ago. Yeah. One thing also, as I reflect back on your time with Gender Justice and also my initial explorations of our website way back when I wanted to work here, is as you're talking, it's clear that we have some divisions in like where we work and like where discrimination or injustices occur, right? Like in healthcare or in schools, how has our work evolved in the area of schools or education? So we have brought a number of different lawsuits on behalf of students being discriminated against by their schools. One, some of the cases that we've done involve things like sexual assault on campus which is considered a form of discrimination because it essentially then, once that happens, it really affects students' access to education, their ability to continue to go to school with somebody who sexually assaulted them, essentially. It has a big impact on their ability to continue their education. And so we've done some of that work as well as discrimination against transgender kids who are just trying to go to school like anybody else. And we've done a few of those cases over the years. And some of the cases we brought under Title IX, which is a federal statute that prohibits discrimination in employment, or excuse me, in education. And uh, there are a lot of challenges to bringing a Title IX lawsuit, but we also have in Minnesota, the Minnesota Human Rights Act, which we mentioned earlier. And the Minnesota Human Rights Act covers a bunch of different things, but it includes a provision against that prohibits discrimination in education. And the Minnesota Human Rights Act, unlike the federal statutes, contains expressly in its definitions that you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity. So we didn't even, you don't have to even make arguments like this is a kind of sex discrimination. It's already, it has been since 1993 expressly included in the Minnesota Human Rights Act. And I think one of the things that we've also done and has evolved at gender justice over the years is that as the federal courts have become more and more conservative, we've switched our emphasis to do more litigation in state court. And so a lot of the cases that we have brought about education discrimination have been litigated in state court using not Title IX, but just 
the Minnesota Human Rights Act. So as the federal courts have become less reliable, I assume because of the Trump administration having worked through all these conservative judges, we have relied on Minnesota's courts. That makes sense. As you reflect back on our legal strategy and as our legal team expanded and we hired Jess Braverman, our illustrious legal director, what other cases have been these salient maybe turning points? Like one that comes to mind for me, obviously, is Dovey, Minnesota. (laughs) When we sued the state of Minnesota, explain that to me. Dovey, Minnesota is a constitutional case instead of being based on one of these statutes that we've talked about, like the Minnesota Human Rights Act or any of the federal statutes. But and it's about it's about abortion. I just jumped to the end here. But it's kind of interesting, I think, how we got involved in that and how that worked. So our executive director, Megan Peterson, comes from the world of abortion activism when she joined us. She'd done a lot of work already in that area. And we were taking a look at, and I'm trying to think of exactly the timeline here, because I think it was in 2016 when we started considering working on this case, or maybe it was a little, maybe it was after the election. (laughs) Maybe it was after that kind of fateful, I think it might've been actually in 2017, and we were connected with a group called the Lawyering Project. The Lawyering Project was founded by Stephanie Todi. Stephanie Todi is the attorney who argued the whole women's health decision at the Supreme Court, which was essentially the last victory, really, for abortion rights at the U.S. Supreme Court. But she won a very important case there that involved like when statutes create an undue burden on what was at the time considered by the Supreme Court to be the fundamental rights involved there. And she, so she had that victory and she was interested in, okay, how do we get abortion restrictions that do have an undue burden on that? How do we get those abortion restrictions struck down? And we were talking with her organization, the Lawyering Project, about bringing a lawsuit in Minnesota. Um, And at the time when we started talking, we were considering where do we bring this lawsuit? Do we bring this lawsuit in federal court, which is the whole woman's health decision is based on the U.S. Constitution. It was brought in federal court. It was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. But I remember, and I think it was at the time that we were talking, when we heard that Justice Kennedy was resigning. And you can say, like, when was the writing on the wall (laughs) in terms of what would eventually be Roe v. Wade being overturned? When was the writing on the wall? And it could have been when the election was decided. You can pinpoint various different points, but like at the point that Justice Kennedy announced that he was retiring, at that point, it was crystal clear that Roe v. Wade is about to be killed. And at that point, it just became obvious that this isn't a lawsuit that we can file in federal court. We can't rely on the Supreme Court's interpretation of the U.S. Constitution anymore. And so we worked to bring this lawsuit then in state court instead under the Minnesota Constitution. And I know you've had podcast episodes about this already, so I won't go into a ton of detail on all of the legal theories here, but 
I think that's been a part of, we really pride ourselves on our strategic thinking about what's coming next and where are the places where we can have an impact and get good decisions and good outcomes based on what's going on around us. And yes. I think the bottom line there is that we've that lawsuit has been wildly successful. Um, as we found out, many people were completely, in the state of Minnesota, are completely unaware of how many abortion restrictions were in place in Minnesota. They've been passed for years, decades, and we have a state Supreme Court decision that protects the right to an abortion, and that's been ignored by legislators for all of that time that they've been passing these laws. And from our perspective, those abortion restrictions were blatantly unconstitutional under the state constitution. And we took the case to state court and just about a week after the U.S. Supreme Court announced the Dobbs decision ending overturning Roe v. Wade, we were able to get the district court here in Minnesota to say, According to the Minnesota Constitution, these abortion restrictions are unconstitutional and cannot be enforced anymore. Yeah, that was such a crazy two weeks for like ups and highs and lows. So for our listeners too, Christy, could you give us a like quick update on where is that the Dovey, Minnesota case right now? What's the sort of state of play there? Yeah, so the that case was not, the decision by the district court was not appealed by the attorney general. One of the things, when you bring a constitutional claim, you are bringing it against a state actor, state entity. I'm thinking, like my lawyer brain is thinking, there are exceptions to that, like you're the exception, <laughs> like in general. And so that case was brought against essentially the state of Minnesota and various state officials saying these, these state laws are unconstitutional. And so the attorney general then was defending the state, decided not to appeal that. I think that is very sensible because I'm quite confident that the Court of Appeals and the Minnesota Supreme Court would agree with how the district court interpreted the law. So it's it would have been a waste of resources to get them to go along with that, but to, or to appeal and to learn that over years of additional litigation. But the case is still, there are bits of the case that are still ongoing because over the time that case was litigated, there were several parties that asked to intervene. In each case, the district court denied those intervention motions. What does it mean when, what does that mean to try to intervene in a case? Yeah, so intervention is is a procedure that's available kind of under the rules of litigation in court that essentially if you have a, like a legal interest in the lawsuit itself, like you are a party that would be affected by the outcome in some legal, legally defined way, then you have the ability to ask the court to include you as a party. And you have to meet the pretty, very specific legal criteria to do that. You can't just go around like meddling in other people's lawsuits because you want to or because you care <laughs> what the outcome is you have to have some legally protected interests 
that give you the ability to essentially come into the middle of somebody else's lawsuit. And so in each of those cases, there were several entities. One of them was the Minnesota State Senate at one point tried to intervene in the lawsuit. Really? Uh, I had no idea. That's fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) But that was denied and and not appealed. But in addition to that, there were some anti-abortion groups that had attempted to intervene in the lawsuit, and those intervention attempts were denied by the district court. And two of those are on appeal right now. The Minnesota Court of Appeals denied the one of those appeals already, and that anti-abortion group is requesting that the Minnesota Supreme Court consider. And then there's another one that's currently being appealed to the Minnesota Court of Appeals. Those, those may take a year or more to resolve and take a really long time if you're going to the Court of Appeals. But again, we feel really confident that those entities, and one of one of them is actually a like a, a county attorney for one of the counties in the state of Minnesota that is trying to intervene. We feel really confident that those folks don't meet the criteria for intervention and that the appellate courts are going to agree. It's just going to take a while (laughs) to like to brief those issues and for the courts to weigh in and say that. So that's where it is right now. But as we are confident will continue to be the case, those abortion restrictions are currently enjoined, which means essentially that they can't be enforced. And so, yeah, great victory. Yeah, huge. We'll never, ever forget that day. So I want to be cognizant of your time because I know you've got a big workload and it's coming up on a Friday afternoon. What other cases stick out in your mind as either your personal favorites or cases that you are especially proud to to have worked on other than the ones that we've mentioned so far? Yeah, I have so many favorites. I that would take me down a rabbit hole that we would be okay. all day discussing. But I think one of the kind of really influential or important cases that we haven't talked, we've touched on a little bit this that the Minnesota Human Rights Act prohibits discrimination in education. But one of our really great victories in court there has been on a case that went to the Minnesota Court of Appeals. And yeah, in that case, that's the NH versus Anoka Hennepin School District case. And we worked in that case with attorneys from Stinson, which is a local private law firm that provided pro bono support, as well as the ACLU of Minnesota. We worked together on that case, but we represented a transgender boy who was on the swim team at high school in the Anoka Hennepin School District. And he was on the swim team. He was on the boys swim team. It was like, he was having a good time. Like he wasn't having any problems with the students. He was good friends with the folks on his team. The coach was welcoming and supportive, but at some point the school district, the school board must have found out that he was a transgender boy swimming on the boys swim team. And they stepped in and said, look, you can't, if you're going to, you can't use the boys locker room. And then over the next summer, they remodeled all of the locker rooms to create like a segregated space 
essentially, and said that you can't use the main boys' locker room, but you can use this segregated space and change there. (laughs) And we felt very strongly, again, the Minnesota Human Rights Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of gender identity. We felt very strongly that segregating students into this is you can't use the locker room that aligns with your gender identity. You can't be in there with your classmates or any of that. You are instead going to be forced to use this separate space that we've created. We felt strongly that was both unconstitutional under the state constitution and violated the Minnesota Human Rights Act's prohibition on education discrimination. And we took that case and it went to the Minnesota Court of Appeals and they fully agreed with us on that and essentially said transgender students have to be allowed to use the locker rooms and bathrooms that align with their gender identity. They can't be forced to use segregated spaces And school districts, it is important, I think, for there to be gender neutral spaces. A lot of times there will be like in in many contexts, you'll see there is a there's a women's restroom, there's the men's restroom, and then there's a gender neutral restroom that or sometimes it's called a family restroom or whatever, things like that. That's totally appropriate. (laughs) Yeah. And some people uh, will want to use the gender neutral space. Maybe they're non-binary or maybe that's just the space where they're the most comfortable. But forcing someone to use that and preventing them from using the locker room or restroom that aligns with their gender identity is, again, if you're a school, that's a state entity that's unconstitutional for you to do that. And for private entities as well, they should be aware that violates the Minnesota Human Rights So It's a really great decision that we got in the early-ish days of the pandemic, it was a kind of bright light to be able to get that decision for our client. Nice. And it's nice to reflect on that too, as, as the issue becomes more of a political punching bag, as we see like the legislation coming out of Florida and other states. I don't know. What do you what are your thoughts on sort of Minnesota's role in protections? as we see these trends across the country? Yeah, I think it's important to, because we do see so much, so many horrific things going on and so many legislators that are essentially using, in particular, transgender people and transgender kids as this kind of like political pawn to attack, to demonstrate how cruel they can be. And I think We see so much of that, and it's so upsetting and depressing. I think it's worth also, though, looking at, on the other side, how far we've come in a short time in some places. And as we were talking about the Affordable Care Act, like it was extremely common, again, before the Affordable Care Act was passed, which was just 13 years ago, it was extremely common for there to be no insurance coverage for any of this. And now, of course, some states are going all in on preventing access to this kind of care, but other states like Minnesota are headed in the opposite direction. And I think it's important to acknowledge the real harms of what's going on, but balance that with a sense that there are things that we can do and there are places where we're making progress. And one of the other things that I think it's important to be aware of is that many of these 
horrific laws that are being passed by other legislators in other states, they're not constitutional under the U.S. Constitution. They violate the Affordable Care Act, which is a federal statute. In the vast majority of these cases, once that law is passed, people in those states are bringing lawsuits that are preventing those laws from going into effect. And I think in many cases, the legislatures that are passing these laws and the legislators are well aware that they are, again, like passing unconstitutional laws. They just don't care because they want to send a message that transgender folks aren't welcome in our state and those kinds of things and really horrible messages that they're trying to send by passing those laws. And I think it's also equally important then for states like Minnesota to send a message by passing laws that people are welcome here, everybody is welcome here, as well as to actually create legal avenues for protecting folks that haven't existed in the past. It's both a messaging issue as well as an actual legal affecting having legal impacts on people. And I think, yeah, those there are a lot of different things going on with those laws. I think that's really important to keep in mind what our protections mean and exactly what you said about it being a messaging issue and also to reflect on the progress that we've made 100%. Awesome. Christy, we're going to have to have you back on the podcast as your schedule allows. I know we, I feel like we only scratched the surface of some of the things that you've worked on here at Gender Justice, but we're really happy to have you here, obviously, for many more years. And yeah, I know we didn't touch on the Cooper case, but we did have a lovely episode with JC and Jess. And thank you so much for joining us today or for joining me. I'm just one person. (laughs) Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. As you can tell, I love talking about our cases. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audra Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.